Right. What's the worst bank? (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to answer that. But if you have any ideas. This is Paul Ford, co-founder of Postlight. I'm joined by one of our designers as co-interviewer. Hello. Will. Yes, that's me. <laughs> tell the people, Hi, Paul. Tell the people your whole name. My name is Will Denton. I am a product designer here at Postlight. He also did the uh, the branding work and the design work on the Postlight website. Yes. You should take a look at that. And Will said, throw me in as an interviewer. I want to see what how it works. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. So I've known Victor for a long time. And a few years ago, he wrote a book called Why We Fail. Yes. Actually, I'm a big fan of that book. And when you mentioned he was on the podcast, I took every opportunity to get myself into this room because just the way that he approaches a customer and user-centric design process was so influential to me as a growing, budding designer. I mean, things fail. Yes. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. Well, you're relatively young. Have you tasted significant failure yet in your professional life? Uh, no, Paul, never. <laughs> we're uh, we're going to get you there. Mm, Don't you uh, worry. Yeah. It's a hell of a thing. So let's not talk about our failures right now. Um, let's talk with Victor about the things that he's seen fail and why. Sounds great. Let's do it. Victor, thank you for coming on Track Changes. Thanks for having me, Paul. Where are you coming from right now? Literally? Literally, physically. <laughs> <laughs> I work two blocks north of you. That's great. Uh, I lead a design team at Capital One. It's one of the reasons why people should move to New York City. (laughs) Everyone works within four blocks of you. (laughs) What does a design team leader do? I try to stay out of my team's way. It's a lot of dealing with all the, you know, the administrative stuff that they shouldn't have to deal with. Mm -hmm. Trying to keep that out of their way. Right, because you're at a big bank. There's a lot of big bank stuff that has to happen. Yeah. yeah. And we are transforming from a traditional bank to more digital bank, as sure. all, you know, any bank with a clue is doing. And it's difficult. It's a painful cultural transition. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of my work is psychology. I'm there to ease the pain. Having a lot of difficult conversations about, yeah, I know that you did that the same way for 20 years, but we'd like to make it better and we'd like to show you a different way. So you're managing, you have this group of people mm-hmm. and- you also have to manage up, really, right? You have to go talk to people about, like, here's what we're going to do. It's going to be different than what you thought it would be. Right. How do, you, how do you get them on your side? I am in a very lucky position in that I'm in the commercial side of Capital One. So mm-hmm. we're basically doing business with businesses. And designers and product people are fairly new to that space. But we have a long history of success over on the consumer side of the business, where like, when you know Capital One, you know it's from our commercials and our consumer credit cards. And that design team has been built up over years and has been very successful. They've you know, contributed to the bottom line. So they've really paved the path for me. What is your pitch to young designers to come work at a big bank? Well, I'll tell you why I came there. Uh, I've worked in the New York digital space all my life. And I've seen some companies that had really great hairy problems, mm-hmm. but didn't have enough ambition to actually tackle them. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they did have the ambition, but they didn't have the resources to do anything about them. City government is a great example, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, there's just- I could rattle know. off the examples. Yeah. Capital One is a place where I felt they had all those things in one place, where they have great, hairy financial service problems, 
that affect people's lives every day. Money's pretty important to us, right? Mm-hmm. They have the ambition to do something about them without being so much ambition that it's hubris. You know, they I think it's managed pretty well in that they're they're a human company. And then the resources to, you know, that they're actually devoting to solve these problems. It's also just a great place to be a designer. We've built up a pretty good reputation in the industry. So it's not, it's not too tough of a pitch. I joke and people talk about sort of the big banks, but they each have their own culture. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And some of them are very hard, challenging places to work where it's very like alpha and everybody's beating their chest. And other mm-hmm. ones are like, well, you know, we really do provide liquidity and, you know, people need access to their resources and we try to build a culture around that. And yeah. They're all a mix. I mean, these are just very large kind of bureaucratic government influenced organizations. Mm-hmm. Right? But as much as it's easy to point and be like, oh, banks, sure. they're, they're different. Yeah. Well, there is something in human nature, I think, when your product is money, right? it's hard not to get greedy. How did you get into this field? I always loved computers. My dad was a software engineer, kind of typical, you know, nerd upbringing of, you know, having a Commodore when I was young and a Timex Sinclair 1000 and learn to program basic and all that good stuff. That's sort of, the Timex Sinclair is probably the worst computer that was ever mass produced. Like, like I have everyone, a fond place in my heart for that Me machine. too, but it was- 1K a, of memory. It was a And terrible, a membrane keyboard. It, it hurt. Like your little, your little 10-year-old fingers are like calloused from jamming basic programs. Into right, it. right. But it's true. The funny thing about it is it was like that all the basic commands that you could run in the programming language were actually on the keyboard. So it was a That's self. Right. It was I a self-documenting computer. Mm, right. Like you didn't have to actually look at a manual because it was all you just hit buttons. Mm-hmm. So I fell in love with being able to make software, and, and you know, over time I took programming classes, but it got to a point where we started getting to serious programming, the university, and I realized I didn't really want to do that full time. And so I was looking for some ways. So you know, offsetting my my father's technical influence was my mother was very much a liberal arts person and kind of encouraged a lot of creativity and writing in me. I was trying to figure out where I can combine those things. And I was actually looking at music technology. Where sure. There's a lot of places where you know, there's a lot of passion around music, mm-hmm. uh, people in our field. And so that was an actual place. Did an internship when I was in college at a record company, but didn't really like the culture. There's a lot of backstabbing going on and just not a great place. When I was at NYU, a couple of people from, from Apple visited, Joy Mountford and Brenda Laurel, and gave a lecture and opened my eyes up to this whole field of people who work with computers, but all they do is make them easier to use. I so you had a conversion experience. That was totally a conversion experience. I went out to the bookstore. I found Bruce Tognazzini's book. It's also at Apple. Oh, right. Ask Tog. Yes. Yeah. Tog on Interface. There weren't that many books either. I mean, it was like, you know, there <laughs> there's two there's, of them. Yeah. There, I mean, like probably the entire library of user interface was maybe 30 books in the world at that point. Right. Right. And so that blew me away that there are people doing this work. They can be technical, but... Their job is really to interface with the humans. Uh, and so I totally fell in love with that. And this was right around the time the web was kind of moving out of the lab. This was 1992, 93, and just decided that's what I wanted to do and went off. Didn't have any training, didn't know how to be a designer, but ended up getting a, my foot in the door in IT and then building up my skills from there. And then you got interested in failure. <laughs> yes. I see. You know, well, if you don't want to fail, yes, Paul. One of the things you can do is give Postlight a call. Oh, really? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Please do. It's because we are very, very risk focused in oh. how we approach software development, platform development, product development problems, and so that that even includes design. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about the work that you do, right? Like, 
Give me an example. How do you factor in risk, like things that can go wrong into the design work that you do? Part of the process that we that we designers do is imagine the obstacles that are just beyond the horizon that we haven't figured out yet. And, mm-hmm. and once you can start to project and hypothesize about what those problems might be, you can start to solve for them ahead of time. That's This is the thing. I think people think of design and they think of making things look nice, which is absolutely part mm-hmm. of it. Making a, a beautiful app that has a lovely user interface, the colors are well chosen. That's key. Mm-hmm. But the conversations are much more like, how could this go wrong? Well, how are we going to, are we going to do something that offends or, or communicates incorrectly with people? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to send them down a bad path that we want to get them to look at two or three screens? How do we get them on board? How do we keep them from getting bored? Mm-hmm. And those are more of the conversations that you have before you even think about what would look beautiful. Yeah. It's very much about carving out space and figuring out where things live. Yeah. And, you know, wayfinding is a metaphor that gets tossed around a lot. It's it's very much about starting to put tent poles around this ambiguous nebulous thing so, and then and then putting that that final polish on. So let's let's get back to Victor. People are are here to listen to him right now, but if you like to cut risk, if you want to work with Postlight to figure out ways to avoid terrible failures. That is actually what we do. We don't just make it look good. We think of all the things that could go wrong and we plan around them, both from design and product perspective and and also from engineering perspective. So get in touch at hello at postlight.com and let's get back to our interview. Yeah. So let's talk about failure. Why do products fail? Why do products fail? Let's point out, Victor wrote a book uh, a couple years ago, right? Yep. It's sort of an unusual book in that it really is about failure. So the the backstory here is that after working in IT for a while and going to design, I've always liked taking on bigger, bigger problems. And so I found myself in a product management role. And this was around the time, I don't know if you remember wasabi.com. Is that what it is? I thought it was Wasabi, like in Spanish. Oh, maybe it is. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I've only seen it, you know, I've only been reading about it. So this was later, you know, beaten by, in their words, uh, mint.com, which is probably more familiar. It's, you know, it's a system that aggregates your all your bank and credit card information into one place and visualizes it so you can make sense of your finances. Wasabi was a predecessor of that. And for various reasons, they were beaten by mint. And the founder had the courage to write a postmortem and explain what happened. And as a product manager, it to be able to see the inside of the company, all the decisions they made and why, and have someone talk about what they learned was incredibly helpful. So I sent this off to Lou Rosenfeld. And I said, you really should do a book about this because people like me in this field need this. There's, you know, there's a lot of hype, I think, about failure. The narrative is we crushed it. Uh. <laughs> we crushed it and yeah. crushed it. And then there was a bad thing that happened. So we had to go out of business. We'll see you, we'll see you for the next yeah. one. Yeah, but and it wasn't our it's, fault. Yeah. It's just not helpful. And so... To answer your question, I narrowed down the scope of what I wanted to look at by trying to see, you know, what are the, what are these stories that really I think could help people in the field? And I think of that pretty broadly. It could be product people, designers, technologists, people running businesses. Learn from products that have failed, not f- because the marketing was wrong or the technology didn't work. Or the designs were bad. Or the, the designs were bad because yeah. on the surface, they all look like great products. But the experience of the product was what killed them. So that was one of the the big points I try to make in the book is that those are really two different things. We often talk about them in the same breath, 
that they're the same thing. We conflate them to say like, hey, check out our new experience. But you didn't really create the experience. You created the product and I'm having experience of it, which may, may or may not be the experience that you hoped I would have of it. So experience is the big risk point. Well, you know, there's a lot of risk points. There's a million things that can go wrong. Boy. But why focus on the experience? I felt like it hadn't been done before. See, and it's a tough message too, because like, like in, everybody can figure out why the bridge fell apart. Right. It's like, oh, well, we used the wrong metal or the engineers did this instead of this. And we know that physics got in the way. Right. And the bridge fell down. This is spongy stuff. Yeah. So you're, you know, you're basically saying that like you need a certain amount of talent and focus in order to avoid failure. Yeah. To yeah. give you a quick two quick examples, you know, sort of an anti-story here is a success that that could have been a failure in like the iPhone 4, where they had that whole antenna problem with the iPhone 4 and consumer reports came out against it. They were trying to have a consumer reports moment there. And the iPhone 4 ended up you know setting sales records. Right. And so people were actually still having a good experience with it, even though it had this design flaw, this technology flaw. And on the other hand, you have things in, the, in my in stories, my book is full of like the um, BMW iDrive, the BMW iDrive, which is how you control all your, you know, in car information using a little knob in between the two front seats. I think that, I was eight or nine years old seeing that for the first time. And yeah. even then, even then, I knew, God, this is awful. But it looks cool. Mm -hmm. If you go to the auto show and you sit in a brand new BMW and you start playing with it, it's like, this is yeah, so it's a beautiful, wow, beautiful, thing. beautiful screen. Right, it feels so the, really nice. The but design was right. Uh, uh, I would say the industrial design, like the shape, the, mm -hmm. the physical thing was beautiful. Yes. And it felt good to touch. Well, because that's, right. that's something BMW really understands. Yeah. But if you get out on the road and you try to change the radio station while you're you know driving 75 miles an hour... That's a big problem. You you can't figure out how to work the menus. And then suddenly you're having a bad experience of something that's otherwise looks like a good product. Well, and you spend a lot of money on this car. Like right. BMW people are going to be extra frustrated mm -hmm. that they can't change the radio station. It's not like they bought something for $2 off yeah. of wish.com. Right. The the thing that I found really interesting in your book is that you you are peeling back the the layers and the onion and you're getting at the internal politics even within an organization that mm -hmm. You know, sometimes there's just a lot of biases that come from designers, that come from any stakeholder within that group who's building the product that are getting in the way of that own product success. Yeah, I think it's a very difficult balance that we try to draw between having enough confidence in ourselves, as people have hired and paid a lot of money to make these products, with having the humility to realize we're not the user, we're not the customer. Um, we're not the ones having the experience of this. We really need to go out and understand the customer and do that. And, and some of that leads to obvious conclusions like, well, do more user research. But that, in reality, that's a very difficult balance to strike when you're going through you know, a thousand meetings on the way to the product. You know what else is tricky, too, is that analytics can be dropped into a product to, to sort of prove almost anything. Sure. If you structure the analytics components so that they're reporting on metrics that you kind of already know the outcome mm -hmm. or where there's going to be these relatively tight tolerances. And that can look like success, but not actually capture or deal with any of the real failure states that are occurring. It could be product success, like just a performance success. That's but. right. It's loading. It's fast. Looks good. You know, people, mm -hmm. people are clicking here and there. And meanwhile, the core proposition can be an utter disaster. Yeah. And it's great that the lean community, I think, has done a great job there of calling those out as vanity metrics. Right. Trying to get us to focus on the right things. And that's a lot of what I talk about. And toward the end of the book is, 
you know, based on all these failures, how can we combine what we've learned about the user experience with what uh, Lean tells us is a better process? How do we mush all that together into it to do things better? So let's let's talk about a couple different states for people who are listening. One would be, what if you find yourself in the middle of a failure? What should you do? Give me an example. <laughs> uh, you are a engineer, let's say, or a designer or a product manager, and you are in the middle of a 12-month project mm-hmm. at your company, and you're supposed to build something. It's an app, let's say. And about six months in, you realize it's going to be late mm-hmm. and that all the things that everybody said it would do, the competitors do better, and two key people have quit. And you got six months ahead of you, and you're, you don't really know. Like You know that there's probably no path out. What's there to learn? What should you do? Because people, you find yourself in your career until you learn how to manage and, and really deal with and understand these situations. Mm-hmm. You find yourself in that situation from time to time. What's the, what's the best way to get value out of that? That's a great question because it's something I had to face in my career when I was writing the book. Well, I think all I, of us do. Like yeah. it just you, you get mm-hmm. on these projects and you're like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, I think we're in real trouble. Yeah. I think it's, it's one great thing that Agile has given us is the retrospective. Mm-hmm. I think just stopping and trying to deliberately understand what happened there is in working through that pain can be one of the most fruitful things because mm-hmm. you don't want to repeat that pain in your future. And that's really the the benefit that you need to look at is, you know, I don't want a career where I'm going to keep repeating this problem over and over again. But I'm still learning even after, you know, writing this book and seeing, you know, subsequent product launches in the world and saying, oh, I, you know, I now have a new perspective on something I wrote about and how that that decision maybe was better than I thought it was, maybe it was worse than I thought it was. And so I'm kind of continuing it on, on the blog, on the book site to um Yeah, book to site. Don't, there. don't use the word blog. Nobody knows what that is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. I think we can bring back the blog. What's lo- what blog? You and I, Paul, can bring back the yeah, blog. No more it's a blogging. topic for another time. Um, so uh, what are early signs? that something's going to fall apart. Are there any, or is it, is it only in the postmortem that we are able to, if you're not really in touch with the customer. Okay. Then that starts at the very beginning. It does. These things are very relative, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a success or not. And I gave the example of the Walkman, which, you know, in its day, you have this portal portable device, which, you know, takes your music with you is, you know, is amazing for the day. These days, of course it would, awful experience. The sound is not as good as what we have in our pockets now. Yeah, I get 12 songs. 12 songs. And I have to replace my batteries four times a day. Right. So whether something's great or not is relative to our expectations. Uh, In the book, the big case study there is, you know, Apple's Final Cut Pro 10, Mm -hmm. where um, they came out with something that performance-wise was a light year ahead of the competition. It was so amazing. Apple recognized that the processors have gotten so fast that we can actually make the behave, behavior of the software different. Mm-hmm. You can perform an action. We can now start you know, rendering images in the background and you can just keep working rather than tying up the whole computer. And while they're at it, let's massage the whole UI to reflect this new power. Dun, dun, dun. dun right? <laughs> Incredible piece of software, but completely different than everyone was used to. And you know, it was a really product for professional editors, video editors, sound editors who are used to doing things one way and being very productive when they got a client gig and suddenly Apple changes everything. And yeah, they were really pissed off. Sure. Of course. I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's your whole worldview. Yeah. And then they're like, actually you've been thinking incorrectly. (laughs) Yeah. And then how do you come in there with the, but wait, we, we know better and we've designed it better. Yeah. 
Yep. And so it's a careful balance because uh, Apple does that all the time. They do. Like they're always kind of yeah. like, hey, we we know better. Let's, we're going to launch something it's, else. It's worth remembering. I mean, the, the Mac held on by a thread. The Mac mm-hmm. could have been killed at any minute. Oh, several, was, several yeah, times. It was a disaster. <laughs> like, I mean, compared to what they put into it and what the expectations were, they, yeah. you know. And then the next after, it's just narcissism and some technical superiority really kind mm-hmm. of got them over the line. Yeah. I think, you know, if you look at their entire history and all those product launches, I think we forget about their failures. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, been, they, they spend a lot of money, so we do. Yeah. Right. Um, that's part of the that part's probably not in the book right yeah, like, yeah can we a, add a little addendum that yeah <laughs> hiding your failures yeah, lots right. of money and sheer bravado will get you through but it's a good lesson though because they they have such a great history of questioning our expectations and getting away with it that it's become a pretty good strategy for them to keep cannibalizing themselves mm-hmm. messing with our expectations of what we should be doing with their software and getting away with it 90 percent of the time well, there's a strain here too, which is that you, you're kind of a humanist at heart. Sure. And so this idea of like, let's openly acknowledge and look at our failures as, as people, as products, like whatever, that's part of being a, you know, a humanistic, mm-hmm. following a humanistic discipline, thinking about ways things could be better, assuming that you are not great or immortal, but just a person who's doing their best. And that's not a corporate mindset. Like the corporate mindset is we are, we have to be basically flawless. So you're a failure and risk oriented thinker. And now you're in a, a large financial institution. How mm-hmm. do those parts of the world line up? I think I've come to realize that there are parts of any big corporation, especially financial services that find that humanism challenging. And sure. some are much more open to it. How do you become an advocate for user-centered design and to, you know, Everyone at the board. And before you talk mm-hmm. about selling it, let's define it for the audience. When you say human-centered design, what does that mean? Human-centered design is putting the human at the center of all the work that you do. So not everyone's going to be receptive to this. And they don't necessarily need to be. Uh, you know, Some businesses are built on some kind of uh, you know, infrastructure competitive advantage where they just don't really need to think about the humans per se. It's maybe it's machines interacting with machines or a low cost solution. Like when you walk into a Walmart, does it need to be, do they need to throw a lot of human centered design at the, how they display things on their shelves? Maybe I'm sure they put a lot of thought into that, but their advantage is low cost. And that's why yeah. people go there. You get a lot of stuff, not paying a lot of money. Right. Well, they have a system. They have a way of thinking about the signage in the store mm-hmm. that may or may not be that. Right. But it's, Yes, they have a framework. It'd be hard to sell them a new method. Yeah. Because they're like, well, if you do that and I lose 1%, mm-hmm. you ruined my year. Right. Yeah. But, you know, to give them some credit, they bought Jet.com, which makes a big investment in, in human-centered design. That's tricky. It's listening to you because we're both, we kind of came up in New York City at around the same time. And, and there's a mid-career moment here where there's no single belief system. There's You have a set of things that you know will work. Like, I know you, I know that if I came to you and I said, I need to solve these design problems and you know these product problems, you would go, okay, well, here's what, here are the 12 things I would do. And they'd be pretty good. You've shipped a lot of products in mm-hmm. your time and you'd get the risk down unless there was some extremely bad external thing that we couldn't control. Mm-hmm. You'd get the risk down basically to zero. We'd get it into the app store. We'd get it out into the world. So like, you know, you have stuff that works, mm-hmm. but then you go into a room and everyone else is kind of like you and they also have their thing that works. Mm-hmm. And 
someone way up in the clouds has said, you all need to work together mm-hmm. and do the thing that works. And it's, it's really tricky. And I, I sort of like, I'm calling it out because I know that a lot of the people listening are sort of getting into and starting to understand product. And it feels like these are conversations you're not allowed to have because mm-hmm. you're supposed to believe one thing so fiercely and have one approach to building product and getting it right and doing the right design. And anything that doesn't hew to that is dangerous and bad and you need to fight it and stand up. But it's mm. it's actually so much more complicated. Absolutely. It's just weird adults with going a little gray at the temples, <laughs> going like, oh, well, I like Victor, actually. He's a good guy. We should talk to him about that. Like mm-hmm. that that's how it works out. Yeah. You know, and then and, and like not pissing off your your colleagues. That's right. Else. And then Susie's <laughs> like, Yeah, no, no. Actually, when we did this other project and he he kind of got us out of the fire a little bit. And then and Sam goes, All right, you know, we should really be thinking more about design here. And then and then suddenly progress can be made. That's part of it, definitely. Yeah. I also try to you know, collectively define what success looks like at the end. Mm-hmm. If we success, say success is getting that app into the app store and then consumers do X, Y, and Z, and this is how the company benefits, we can all agree to those things. Then we can start working backwards from that and say, what do we need to do to achieve that? Something actually I really appreciate in the book is you do have a method outline, mm-hmm. but it, there's no weekly guide. There's no... Mm-hmm. 10 steps. And it's a big it, flaw in the yeah. book because it would have sold so many more copies if I had 10 steps to mm. follow. <laughs> well, <laughs> it would have well, made a better medium no, article. No, no, but so that, that's what I think is really interesting about it is because- <laughs> Yeah, this is the rough part, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah obviously that, that probably would sell. Um, but when you mentioned this book about the scientific method for design, you right. know, I perked up and I was like, oh, that's so interesting because the first time I really came across that was with Google Venture Sprints that mm-hmm. provide a handy dandy- Monday through Friday, here's exactly what you're going to do for as long as you're going to do it. And there's a lot of overlap, but the training wheels always fall off and you can't quite follow the perfect formula. But something about this approach is you're not condensed to a week. Mm -hmm. It, It gives you that sort of those rough guidelines or that loose framework to start to conceptualize the real value add to this, to whatever big, ugly challenge you're taking on. Yeah, that was a... Those are a difficult two chapters to write because I was trying to synthesize everything from the book plus everything I had learned in my career and try to think about, you know, if I had to find some principles that applied universally across everything I've ever experienced, what would they be? But I think they are a nice compliment, as you say, to something like a Google Sprint where you need to drop those in once in a while and um, make progress that way. Mm. I want to talk about a product that I think about a lot. All right. And see what you think about it and will what you think about it. Sure. That product is Google Plus. <laughs> mm. Have you spent any time thinking about Google Plus? A little bit. I recently went back in there because mm-hmm. I'm like, wonder what happened. And I have never seen a giant company like just give up this profoundly before. Hmm. So it's still, I mean, Google Plus is supposed to be the Google social network. It, you click on, you want to follow somebody and it takes like five seconds. You just, you follow somebody on Twitter, mm-hmm. it's like this, blink, you followed them. Mm-hmm. You follow somebody on Google Plus and it goes, burr, 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 mm. ding. Yeah. And um, it's just busted. And they just rolled out some sort of weird redesign. Now, is Google Plus sitting underneath YouTube? 
It's not anymore. So that was one of the uh, great atrocities of everything where yeah. they, Google Plus failed so badly as a social network. They're like, we're going to make you have to log in through Google Plus to do YouTube comments. Mm. And that was such a, it was so, it was badly done, right? Like it wasn't, it never made any sense. And you had to log into five things and then they just rolled it back and you had your YouTube account again. Mm -hmm. um, so I look at that thing. That is a vast surface. There's probably hundreds of people connected to it and working on it. Mm -hmm. There's a, a lot of products around it that are really good, like Google Photos. What the hell do you do with it? Yeah, it's so hard to second guess <laughs> that whole strategy. And my friends at Google will, are about to write me angry emails. But you asked the question. I'm going to try to answer it. They can write me the angry email. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I would, you know, not surprisingly, try to take try to look at the experience you want to facilitate first. Mm -hmm. So you say it's working well on Google photos. What do we do well there? And you know, where else can we have that kind of benefit? There's got to be an intersection there of uh, Gmail mm -hmm. and photos. And you know, there's so many people have Gmail so you think accounts. We have this whole ecosystem of products and mm -hmm. then you have this one sort of social network thing that just isn't really working. Mm -hmm. Start thinking about ways to bring those worlds together. Or at least to just support the successful products, like it, as opposed to trying to, in order to comment on these photos or share these photos, you have to sign in through Google Plus or to comment on YouTube. But mm -hmm. just letting Google Plus be an advocate or to play some sort of supporting role for the mm -hmm. thing that people actually care about, which yeah. is YouTube or Google Photos or Gmail. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's uh, interesting that they have a whole social network just sitting there at this yeah. moment when Facebook is like, everyone's like, eh. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so you're you're as confused as the rest of us, yeah. really. Mm -hmm. Okay. <sighs> a lot more questions about failure, but we should wind up. Mm -hmm. Victor Lombardi, what if people want to get in touch with you? What should, what do they do? You can actually go to, <laughs> to my website. I have <laughs> on, the, on, on the World Wide <laughs> Web. HTTP colon forward slash forward slash dub 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 victorlombardi.com. Oh, my God. And my contact information is actually on there. Okay, so that's a good way to get in touch. What sort of feedback, what sort of people are you looking for to, to hear from? You know, I, um, I've just had a revelation recently that I've done a terrible job with my alumni networks. Mm -hmm. I've, I've gone to Rutgers, I went to New York University, um, and ignored those for a long time because I was out in the tech world. But I went to an event last week um, for a whole other school. I was just so inspired by how they were bonded together and they were supporting each other. Um, this was specifically for a Latino audience and they were just so fired up and so passionate. Um, I'm like, why not, why aren't I helping, you know, my kind of fellow alum or students or and the very next day, someone just contacted me out of blue on LinkedIn, um, who just graduated from NYU and said, Hey, can you help me? And I'm like, yes, I can. Mm -hmm. I can do that now. Cause I'm, I'm paying attention. So that's something that I'm doing. That's new is, is saying, you know, it's a, it's a bit of an arbitrary affiliation, but somewhere I can help. You're connected to it. Yeah. Yeah. Help the network. Mm -hmm. So if you've, if you've been in networks with Victor Lombardi. <laughs> if we're connected on Google Plus. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, don't be afraid to reach out. Well, good. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Awesome. Well, well I think I know a lot more about how things fail. Uh, yeah, I would say the same too, Paul. I think I'm ready to fail we should just let's <laughs> let's maybe this podcast is our first example <laughs> i think we did great um so look if you're ready to avoid failure with us uh, first of all thank you to victor lombardi for coming on his book is available in all kinds of formats just look for his name and uh, on on the internet 
and you will find what you need to know. We'll put some links when we put up the podcast too. If you need us, if you need us to build you something that really we do a lot to keep things from failing, you can get in touch. You can work with a designer like Will. Yeah, you stuff. could. It's it's very real possibility. It's an incredibly real possibility. So, Will, do you know how the people should get in touch with us? I think so. It's it's on the internets, right? It's it is. The email? Yeah. Yeah. Hello at, at postlight.com. Post Thank you. Take care. Bye.